Hallelujah. Father, surely as we look upon the landscape of your work in history, we see providentially how you've arranged every circumstance and every genealogy according to the line of the Messiah, every birth, one generation to another until the son of David arrived at your precise time and the fullness of that appointed hour was there upon the stage of history, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was born here uh, in our circumstance and experience to bear the weight of our sin upon his shoulders on Calvary to fulfill the law perfectly as God and man and to rise again with victory over the grave, having satisfied perfectly the cost of his own body and blood, the sufficient payment do our sin, taking the wrath of God upon his stripes, upon his brow, his back, and his bleeding body. Lord, for this reason, we could sing of your love forever because this blood applied to us washes us free of the debt that we owed for our sin because Christ has paid it in our place. For these reasons, Lord, you deserve forever praise. This morning, as we have this opportunity in the singing of these songs and the sharing of our experience one with another in fellowship and in prayer and in the listening, heeding, and submitting to the proclamation of your holy word. I pray that all of this would be done in a heart of appreciation and growing understanding, confidence, and boldness to proclaim the mercies of God, which are new for everyone every morning who is in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we turn now to your holy word, I pray that our minds, our hearts, our ideas, and our sins would be surrendered before the authority and power and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Truly, Christ, you are king, and I pray that you would rule and reign in our souls, even as we hear your word proclaimed through the proclamation of your scriptures this day. And at your table, where your body and blood are represented, I pray this day that our hearts would be tied all the tighter to the reason for our hope within, that Christ has come, was born, was raised, died in our place, and now ascended, ruling and reigning evermore, the right hand of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Hallelujah. <clears throat> what a gift, a joy, and privilege it is to be with you this day. Truly missed you last week as we were out of town. And I praise the Lord for the glorious reunion of the saints. And may we never grow too comfortable or to despise or to take for granted or take lightly the fellowship of the beloved. Certainly Peter would not, and we find this to be the case in 2 Peter. And if you would turn there with me today, we'll continue in our series on Communion Sundays, exploring this book. This will be the second installment under the title Fortified Faith. That's the title of today's sermon, Fortified Faith. Peter gives us a prescription of supplements to fortify or to strengthen our faith. We've covered those in our last message, but we'll explore them in more detail, amplified by the context of the rest of the book this morning. The aim of this morning's message is to reinforce the church by proper means. Reinforce, of course, means to strengthen, to equip, to give the necessary, if you will, armaments for war, or the necessary defenses in case of an onslaught, or the necessary uh, weapons in the case of taking ground. Uh, Peter gives us, by way of these supplemental qualities, as he describes them, sufficient reinforcements for the church. Therefore, these are the proper means to fortify and strengthen our ranks, our resolve, and our position 
no matter the threat. And certainly the church is under threat by various forces today, whether it be in our land in America or overseas in places that are very troubled right now. We read in the news of Afghanistan, for instance, our brothers and sisters are suffering in harm's way under the threat of persecution or worse, in some cases, martyrdom. Yet nevertheless, because this is the word of God and these are the inspired words of the apostle commissioned to give the church sufficient means to stand, we have uh, a prescription for fortified faith in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 15. As you're able and out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? Hear now the Holy Scriptures coming again to us in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 5 through 15. The apostle says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 6, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this analogy fits the context very well, I submit. Peter can be compared to a skilled health practitioner. So if you go to a nutritionist or a doctor or a physician who knows their stuff and has some understanding of your condition in the human body, he might assess the patient's physical condition and find that he is lacking in some areas. Therefore, he moves to prescribe a regimen of beneficial supplements to reinforce the immune system, perhaps to promote muscle strength or the cardiovascular system to be strengthened. After all, this patient is in need of endurance. He gets tired easily. He's prone to chronic illness and sickness. He needs something to fortify his physical being, right? We understand this analogy. Well, similar to a nutritionist who might recommend vitamins, foods, or activities designed to fortify health and vitality, in our passage today, Peter, a skilled physician of the soul, if you will, addresses the spiritual health of the early church in a similar way. And upon doing so, he prescribes a regimen that is a list, a protocol, a prescription of supplements and these supplements are designed to fortify the faith of the church. We have seven of them. Do we not, church? We find them as virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are just what the doctor ordered, as it were. These are what we need, what the church, the early church needed to stand in a day where her faith was challenged. 
Consider for a moment, if you will, the vast array of challenges the church has endured over the last 20-plus centuries. Yes, church, body of Christ, the gathering of the assembly of the beloved, we have endured, that is, the body of Christ generally, for 20-plus centuries. How is that possible? With every shape, manner, and form of demonic onslaught against the confessing church of Jesus Christ at times and in eras where the whole world seemed to oppose her, her numbers were very small, and the powers that be, the principalities and the rulers of the air in this world declared all-out warfare against the scriptures and against the representatives of Jesus Christ, the ambassadors of the gospel. How is it that we are still standing here today against all odds? In some cases, it might appear a ragtag band, but a 20-plus century record is not too shabby. The reason we are standing is because the church is fortified by sufficient means so long as we pay heed within the very source, the manual in which we turn to strengthen our ranks, and that would be the Holy Scriptures. Consider a vast array of challenges that the church has endured. One example came by way of a sermon that we sat under when we were in Fargo visiting last week. Jesus prophesied of this challenge in Luke 17. It came by way of Roman conquest surrounding Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Do you remember this? Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, flee to the hills and to the mountains. Who were those who obeyed? Those who considered Jesus to be proclaiming the word of God, to be God in flesh, to be a legitimate prophet, to know the future, and obeyed and submitted to his authority? They listened to his word. They heeded his word. And instead of taking refuge in the tall walls of that strong, you know, man means fortified place, they fled to the hills. They, that is to say, they listened more to the word of God than the natural means to fortify. And as a result, while Jerusalem endured that devastating cultural destruction of Jewish life and religious practice that was absolutely monumental, the ashes of the temple lie in ruins to this day, never to be rebuilt in 20-plus centuries, and the sacrificial system of the old covenant order is obsolete, dead and buried under the rubbles of attacking Rome. Nevertheless, the believers who escaped this holocaust did so by paying heed to the word of God delivered by way of prophecy through Jesus Christ, the prophet of prophets himself. And thus the church, though small in number, you perhaps could sit down and counter in the hundreds at that time and it would only take you a few minutes to assess her ranks by way of apparent strength. Nevertheless, escape this holocaust by paying heed to the scriptures. One of the distinguishing moments in the New Testament church came by way of this fleeing to the hills at the time when Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies. And I submit, through Peter's writings, the church of all ages is granted means to survive spiritual attack as well. The enemies of Jesus will never ultimately defeat the body of Christ who heeds these words we have read today. Indeed, the promise is secure, and it's proven in the track record of the longevity of the church, the remnant of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the properly equipped church. So let us wisely assess our times, saints, and pay heed to these words in 2 Peter, our own livelihood. Our own survival depends upon them. And by these means, by these supplements, by this prescription, may we be sufficiently fortified. Peter's apostolic instructions include the following. These are our three main points this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first. I don't know how much time we'll have left over for the remaining two. We can always pick up on a later time on those points. 
uh, the heading, however, for today, Peter's apostolic instructions include the following. A prescription of supplements. Number two, a description of their benefits. And number three, a conviction to remind the church of these things. A prescription of supplements, verses 5 through 7. A description of benefits, verses 8 through 11. And his conviction to remind, 12 through 15. So a few days ago, I met with a couple of pastors from our ministry network, Common Slaves, and a wise pastor who has been serving some, I don't know, many more decades than me, explained that they, are ta- they have contingency plans in their church to go underground if necessary. At first you think, well, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Well, be careful lest you be naive and grow too lethargic in, the appara- in basically the you know, default freedom that we've enjoyed in this nation. If you wanted to share our convictions as a church in Australia right now, even though we think of it as a developed Western country, you would have to go underground, or you would be deemed in violation of their whatever COVID protocol, or the latest restrictions which say you must quarantine your homes in certain areas. Furthermore, we need to look you know, not much further in the news to find evidence of Afghanistan, for instance, overrun by an enemy, religious philosophy, namely Islam, as it's represented in the Taliban, which will likely marginalize, if not persecute, if not martyr, many numbers of the church in that land. So let us not be naive, church. We may have contingency plans to, yes, go underground if necessary, because as far as the convictions of Providence Community Church are, we will gather in the name of Jesus because he is our king and has commanded thus and so. And we will not bow to another authority who ostensibly says for our own good health, we will not uh, be allowed to embrace the means of grace that God has supplied. That's where we stand. And if there are restrictions that come down the line, you better believe we will need to be fortified if the opposition increases. This could happen in our own land. But as important, and I would argue more so, than contingency plans to go underground, are the spiritual supplements and fortification that you may not grow weary in well-doing and stand on your rock, Jesus Christ, if the days grow darker. And that is the theme of our text today. Peter knows the church needs these things, and therefore his instructions include a prescription of supplements. He says in verse 4, let's back up to 3, his, speaking of Jesus, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you see there the proclamation of sufficiency in Jesus Christ? Can you stand in a day of restrictions that may threaten your freedom to gather as a church? Yes. How do we know? Because his power, the power of Jesus Christ, who by the way defeated the grave, gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this reason now he says Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So let's connect those two. Verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then verses 6 or 5 through 8 there, or through 7 specifically, verses 5 through 7, a description of particular things, a prescription of supplements to fortify our faith. Beginning number one, we should add to our faith virtue. My goal in this section as for us to consider these qualities, virtue, knowledge, 
self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love in their context. All of these qualities that Peter lists are amplified by the context of the rest of the book. We'll touch on more of this as we move through 2 Peter, but just to give you a better idea, the content, the context behind each of these, we'll touch on them this morning. What is virtue? Well, if you look up in an interlinear help, it will give you a definition of the original language and its use in the greater context of Scripture, and you might come up with a phrase like this, moral vigor, moral excellence, or moral goodness. Virtue, I would choose the two words, I think, to best describe it contextually, moral excellence, virtue. There are only five uses in the New Testament of this word virtue. Four of them Peter uses, and one Paul uses in Philippians 4.8. That's that passage where, you know, whatsoever things are, you know, good and virtuous, they're of excellence, uh, some translations, if there be any virtue, excellence, if there be any praise, think on these things. This idea of excellence is so closely tied to the word virtue that it can be translated either way. In our text, for instance, in 1.3, that reference to excellence is the same Greek word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You could say, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and virtues. It's the same word. Furthermore, in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities, oh, excuse me, there's another reference I'm looking for. Oh, it's in 1 Peter. If you turn back with me to 1 Peter 2, 9, you'll see the word again referenced in context. In 1 Peter 2, 9, uh, the apostle says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There again, that word appears, could be translated virtues or excellencies. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a gathered church? What is our duty? What is our calling? We are a people of Christ's own possession to do what? To proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when Peter speaks of virtue, he doesn't speak of goodness in the classical Greek abstract sense of the word. You know, these are things that promote quote-unquote human flourishing. Or we find that evolution by natural selection has chosen benefits society the most. Those might be two references you hear in more broader secular, historical, or philosophical culture. No, the virtues that Peter is referencing is the moral excellencies of God himself. The moral excellencies of God. Peter proclaims these and says it's our duty to do the same. And he proclaims and he prescribes them as a supplement to our faith. If you are, uh, have the knowledge of, appreciation of, and seek to be in conformity to the moral excellencies of God, you are availing yourself of a necessary fortification to stand when your faith and the church's faith is challenged. In uh, one of our Sunday schools, the older kids have studied of late the communicable, which means can share in, versus incommunicable attributes of God. You can't share in them. The moral excellencies of God that Peter is referring to are the communicable attributes of God. They're the aspects of God that the Spirit begins to conform us to through sanctification. Our God is holy. 
and through sanctification, he is making us holier. Our God is righteous, and by the power of his indwelling spirit, made possible at regeneration, he is working righteousness in us. A deeper desire to live in conformity to his law and word. Our God is loving, he is gracious, and so we are called to demonstrate that communicable attribute, loving the love of God and the grace of God properly qualified. Our God is just. We are called to stand upon his justice and to the degree he's delegated to us, administer his justice as well, depending on our calling in that regard. These are the moral excellencies of God. These are the virtues of God himself. If we understand and embrace, we'll fortify the church. Well, we were at a, uh, last weekend, a music festival where you kind of have your radio bands, your Christian radio bands playing for a couple days straight. And I really had a great time. Precious believers and some real bright spots in ministry and proclamation. However, let me give this one critical review. I mean, you may have noticed this if you listen to a lot of that kind of Christian radio, kind of CCM, Christian contemporary music. By and large, it seems that the emphasis, and this isn't just the fault of music, but evangelical church generally, the emphasis of the value of Scripture is the blessings and promises that accrue to the believer because of their salvation. We care so much about this that a lot of times it dominates our thoughts, our prayers, our wishes, our desires, our themes in music and worship and radio, and so on and so forth, our meditations, the blessings that accrue to us. And that is a category in Scripture, but let me submit it's secondary. Far more important is the moral excellencies of God himself. What we could have used a little more of in that event was the proclamation of the moral excellencies of the goodness of our God, of the righteousness and the wrath and the justice and the holiness and the power and the authority and the creative ability and his providence over all of life, the world, and history from creation to recreation. Church, we are in many cases, let me speak generally and broadly, anemic and weak, and our voice is thin and feeble. We will stand. God will preserve his remnant. However, let us avail ourselves of the supplements, the moral excellencies of our great God. Hold us accountable in this church that the philosophy of ministry, preaching, and worship would be the exaltation, the magnification, enthroning the Lord Jesus Christ that his glories, his excellencies may be manifest. Let that be our chief end, church, as we gather in this place. Your spiritual life depends on it. Your spiritual vitality depends on it, especially in a day such as ours, where your faith and culture will provide, or the culture will provide a test for your faith if personal circumstances do not. Nevertheless, let us avail ourselves of this prescription to strengthen ourselves, have a fortified faith, virtue, knowledge. Peter goes on, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Here are two words that can apply, doctrine and wisdom. The knowledge of what? Well, the true teaching of God's scripture. Furthermore, the application of the same. In context, this is the kind of thing that Peter refers to. Knowledge is a prominent theme in his text. He has referred to knowledge in verse 3. He says that God has granted us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That would be an understanding, assent, and a real trust in Jesus Christ, 
His glory, and His virtues. Those things, the knowledge of God, are sufficient means to fortify us. What the gospel actually says and placing your whole faith and trust in it. Furthermore, verse 2, may the grace and peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That would be the message of the gospel clearly proclaimed. Its antithesis, that would be the opposite, is listed categorically in verse 16 referenced in this passage. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's the opposite of the knowledge of the true gospel, the doctrine and wisdom of a biblically grounded faith. The opposite is cleverly devised myths designed to tickle the ears of culture, designed to cater to a consumer class, a product designed to attract seekers, so on and so forth. These cleverly designed myths, do you think they will fortify you when your faith is challenged? Do you think they will supply to you the necessary and sufficient armaments, vitamins and minerals, if you will, spiritually, so you will stand a day? No, they will not. We need to repent of the cleverly devised myths, the tricks and all of the distractions and the things that attract the attention of the flesh, but avoid the solid meat and foundation of the Spirit and truth, holy and completely proclaimed in Jesus Christ, His substitutionary death for sinners, and the work of the Spirit to conform us into His image. These things are foundational. This is the knowledge to which Peter refers. This will be an outline, I trust, for a future message, but we have the antithesis of this knowledge in verse 16. But we go on, for, and, and Peter continues to give assent to this knowledge by qualifications in the same verse. He says, as against those who are proponents of cleverly devised myths, in so many words, he says, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he's a legitimate witness. He can testify, because according to the law of God, he actually witnessed, and the testimony of two or three, actually many more witnesses of the apostolic church give assent that is a biblical, legal, objective standard of truth to Jesus come in flesh, proclaiming the kingdom, dying for us, rising again and ascending unto glory. So we have the antithesis, cleverly devised myths, qualification of the voice, an eyewitness testimony, an anointed apostle. Then we have the revelation itself, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, speaking as a witness, heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is the revelation of the incarnate Christ revealed at the Mount of Transfiguration in his pre-incarnate glory. And the eyes of his followers opened to realize this is more than a mere man. This is the Savior prophesied of old. And now we see the veil of his humanity slightly lifted to reveal his glory that he always had as the second person of the Trinity before the Father. And now we understand as he ascends to the right hand more who this truly is, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, and we ourselves, Peter says, are witnesses to this very revelation. And finally, he gives a foundation for knowledge. And we have something more sure. What could be more sure than seeing with your own eyes? The testimony of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter answers verse 19, the prophetic word. What's that, saints? It's what you hold in our hand, what you stood to hear, what you stood to read earlier today. This is the foundation of knowledge. The prophetic word which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Oh, the days are growing dark. It's the last days, I'm afraid. It's going to go so dark, we won't be able to see our hand in front of our face. We mourn, we lament, and we cry in our weak and anemic faith. No, saints, you need not have to despair. You need not despair if you avail yourself of the foundation of knowledge, which is a supplement to your faith, and realize as you understand and value, memorize and apply and build your life upon these words, you do so as a lamp shining in a dark place. How long will God allow that wick to burn? Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart till our Lord and Savior returns to consummate his kingdom in full manifest glory. You see, the true knowledge of the gospel, the word of God, its foundation, is sufficient to fortify you. Virtue, knowledge. Number three, self-control. Back in our primary text, for this reason, make every effort, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 5, to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. What is self-control? A phrase I picked up from my studies is great, dominion within. Self-control is dominion within. In the fall, man lost dominion, that is the right to rule and the ability to wisely rule the earth. And now, as a result of the curse, he would be under the thumb of nature, as it were. He would have to work by the sweat of his brow. He'd have to struggle for survival. But even worse than this you know, uh, descent from the dignity of being a vice regent, a, a co-ruler, a dominion agent for the Lord and nature, even worse than this, is man lost dominion over his own soul. He was now captive and a slave to his base desires within. How in the world can you be resurrected and changed and delivered from your so-called, you could almost call it like animal-like instincts? Peter refers to irrational beasts as a way to describe those who are a slave to the, the, the passions and the desires and the impulses and the urges. And, you know, we live in a culture that's resigned themselves to defeat in this area. This is why people define themselves now by their sexual urges, for instance. Their identity is wrapped up in their preferences sexually. And what is this? This is a codification in culture and sometimes law. It is an elevation, or it is a codification by statute of the great injustice of being delivered over to your base desires. Now, in a culture such as this, what's the way that we can fortify our faith? Well, if not by self-control. Is there a means whereby we can exercise dominion within, not be limited to, a slave to, or controlled by, or identified with exclusively our base desires and urges? The answer is yes. And it becomes more clear in context. Chapter 2 deals with the wickedness that the church is facing by contrast, the inclination, the mentality, the worldview, the practices, the culture of the unbeliever. And there's many references to this, but let's just look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2 as an example. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Do you see, the dominion within is a suitable distinctive to separate those who are righteous from the unrighteous, the godly from those who are caught in their trespasses and sins, dead in their unrighteousness, and a slave to their inward passions. They are those, Peter says, who indulge the lust of defiling passion and furthermore despise authority. Verse 12, he describes them this way. 
But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Self-destructive behavior, much like Sodom. A people given over to their, like irrational animals, to their base instincts and their defiling passions, in spite of even being struck blind in the judgment of God, still groping at the door to satisfy their insatiable lusts. These saints are irrational animals. These are creatures of instinct. And barring the grace of God, all of culture would descend into this catastrophic, depraved mayhem. However, God has ransomed and redeemed us. And because of the indwelling spirit, Peter describes this in these words in verse 3, Verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and great promises, and as such we have become partakers of the divine nature. And in becoming partakers of the divine nature, we have gained God's means to declare dominion within. And the difference between the godly and the unrighteous becomes apparent. We don't live by, identify with, celebrate, endorse irrationality as if we were brute beasts given over to the depraved nature of man in their sin. But instead of being irrational and despising authority, we submit to the moral excellencies of Jesus Christ and pray that God might grow us in grace and understanding and in sanctification that we might exercise self-control and declare dominion within and call a nation who is increasingly demonstrating the absurdity of being given over to their passions, their ignorance, and their base desires to repentance and say, there is a way to be resurrected from the death and depravity of being captive and enslaved to the irrationality and brute beast behavior that you are demonstrating. But it's only through the dominion within that comes, the self-control that comes by surrendering to Jesus Christ and Him giving you a new heart. And with that new heart, new desires, and the ability to turn from sin and turn to him in growing obedience, virtue, knowledge, self-control. And now we come to this fourth supplement, steadfastness. Remember, these are necessary for our faith to be fortified and for us to be strengthened and to stand. Again, because we can't say it too many times, Peter has said he himself has committed to reminding us of these things. So let's read them again. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. Or you could say patient endurance. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we find why the church needs endurance, why the church at this time needed steadfastness. In verse 1, Peter says this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that, listen, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. What will they say? Following their own sinful desires, it's a reference to being captive to their inner passions again. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Oh yeah, you've been a church for 20 plus centuries. Where is the coming of your Lord? You can hear the scoffers today, can't you? Which each, with each year that passes, this is the danger of waiting. We ask ourselves, do their words have any more merit? Jesus has not returned yet. Will he? You can see the seeds of doubt seeking to creep in the longer we wait. Waiting is dangerous. 
Where is the promise of his coming, the scoffer says. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Let's be honest. You know, the world tells us, the secular mind and the philosopher and the academician, the uh, scholar tells us, hey, listen, your uh, spirituality is a figment of your imagination. Really, all there is is the cause and effect relationships in a mo- in a, in a, of the molecules in a universe governed by blind, pitiless chance. Is this true? Well, the longer we wait for Jesus, the more we may weaken in our faith. Is there sufficient grounds to fortify us as we wait for the fullness of the elect to be brought in? Consider the patience of God opportunity for salvation, Peter says in another place. Two ways to look at Jesus waiting one more day to return. One is, uh, is his promise really to be counted on? The second is, thank God in his loving kindness he has spared this world the wrath it deserves that one more soul might enter into glory eternal. Lord, if you should give me the opportunity, give me the words and wisdom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so long as you tarry with this wicked world yet one more day. Peter says that a thousand years are as one day to the Lord. God, in other words, does not measure time as we do. But how can we be fortified against this tendency to grow weary in well-doing? Then consider the time that Jesus has waited to return evidence to the contrary. We do so by paying heed to these scriptures. Did this wait surprise the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? No way. Not a chance. And even now as we turn to his words, we find that they are sufficient to fortify us. We need steadfastness. It is necessary because waiting is dangerous and scoffers abound. Verse 5, however, Peter says, they deliberately overlook this fact. They are willfully blind, he has said in our text before. You know, it's a consequence of not availing yourself of these supplements, nearsighted blindness. Well, the unbeliever is nearsighted and blind. Why? They deliberately overlook, or as evidenced by this, this, they overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Undeniably and inarguably, this world was created by a sovereign designer. You overlook that fact when you deny his existence. And by means of, the, and by means of these, a world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And evidence for the flood, I'm talking geologically, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You know, just as a brief aside, it always makes me laugh when you hear the Nature Channel or Discovery something or other, or National Geographic, you know, watching a little piece on an area, and they're like, uh, it seems to show evidence of a localized yet dramatic flood. Uh, how else can you explain these sediments and this distribution of fossils and, you know, trees dispersed in such a chaotic manner? It definitely has the mark of water, but not a lot of, not, not a lot of water but not so much water to cover the entire earth by 15 cubes because then the Bible would be right and I would have to bow before the authority of this accounting of history, recognize it was by divine authorship, repent of my sins and turn to him and I want to remain self-deluded and my nearsighted blindness and a scoffer and deny the evidence that this world was deluged by the hand of God in judgment, save eight people which preserved the seed of the Messiah. And unless I bow... And enter that ark, Jesus Christ, who is the door, the way, the truth, and life. I will likewise perish. This is the word. This is the message that Peter calls us to return to. This is the message of truth that will give you steadfastness when you have to wait a long time for Jesus to return. And it feels like the days are drawing longer because of the hardships that you endure. Do not forget these principles. The same word that the heavens, and by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. There's a wrath to come. The flood teaches us this. 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Therefore, supplement your faith, church, with steadfastness, and pay heed to these things, the ground of your hope. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness. Once again, Peter has given us this regimen of supplements to fortify our faith. He's now added to this list of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness. Another one, godliness. Godliness or reverence for God. Chapter 3, verse 11, as we continue in that same chapter and following. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, namely the world as we know it, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The syllogism is pretty easy to figure out. If in the new heavens and new earth, only righteousness dwells, then what sorts of people will be found there? Verse 11 answers, the sort of people who embrace lives of holiness and godliness. This godliness, this reverence for God is a necessary supplement. It's accompanying evidence and fruit. It is a condition supplied by God, but nevertheless, a condition that grants us passage into the eternal kingdom. Peter himself will say as much. Do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ washing away your sins and clothing you with those spotless and blemishless, if that's a word, robes of beautiful adornment which render you presentable before a holy and wrath-filled God? If you do not, on that coming day, when the new heavens and new earth arrive, the place of the habitation of the Almighty, which is reserved exclusively for those who share the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will be outside of that place of fellowship, communion, and that sanctuary of God's strongly protected holiness. You'll be an enemy and you'll be cast into a lake of fire outside of Him. Nevertheless, if you, but on the other hand, if you have confessed your sins, placed faith in Christ and trust in His blood to wash away your sins, and that fruit of repentance is as evident in your life with a growing appreciation and desire for the righteousness and holiness of an almighty God, of the godliness and the reverence for him that he requires, then these are supplements that will not only strengthen you in the day between now and then, but also render you presentable on the final day. Godliness is necessary. Given the present circumstances, what kind of people ought we be in light of the present troubles? And what kind of people ought we be in light of future glories? In light of present troubles and in light of future glories, the answer is the same. We ought to be holy and godly people. This is a supplement for our faith. We have only two more, brotherly affection and love. They are, of course, related. Peter proclaims the final two supplements. Again, as we reread our passage, 1 Peter 1.5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, 
Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. Christian love. This term brotherly affection in the Greek is a familiar word to us. We have a city in Pennsylvania named after it after all. Anyone know what it is? What's the Greek word for brotherly love? Give you a hint. City in Pennsylvania. Anyone know? Also starts with a P, but Philadelphia is correct. So steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and then the supplement godliness with Philadelphia. Supplement godliness, that is to say, with brotherly affection. Christian love. There's an example of Christian love, a particular case, a personal case or example that is given in the greater body of 2 Peter. Turn with me to chapter 3. Count the patience in verse 13, the apostle writes, of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother, Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. But you notice the relationship between Peter and Paul? Two apostles, different giftings, Peter acknowledges that. Nevertheless, beloved brothers, sharing between the two of them that Philadelphia. But there's a greater context. These uh, brothers didn't have, the, you know, these Christian brothers didn't have like a superficial love for one another. If we cross-reference to Galatians, for instance, we find that sometimes brotherly love means correcting in love and bringing a strong word of rebuke where warranted. Nevertheless, because true Philadelphia was present between Peter and Paul, not only did their relationship survive, but it presumably grew stronger as a result of this. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on works of the law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Oh, I might be actually citing the wrong passage there. I'll find it. Just give me one second. This evidence of brotherly affection between the two. We'll skip down. Um, oh, here we go. Sorry, wrong, wrong chapter number. Go to 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So who's Cephas? That would be Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, and when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You see here an example of Peter shrinking back from the truth because of the pressure of the cultural circumstances around him. Peter steps in, in brotherly love, and issues a rebuke, calls him out for his cowardice. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentile to live like Jews? So Paul is correcting a brother, an apostle, but he's doing so in love. When he recognized that his brother's actions were out of step with the gospel, he stepped in with that Philadelphia. And I touch upon these two notes in context in the interest of qualifying these qualities which are amplified in the greater testimony of Scripture, 2 Peter, and in this case, Galatians as well. 
That is to say that Philadelphia, brotherly affection, is loving a brother, loving his sister in Christ enough to address them when they are out of step with the gospel, as well as encouraging them for standing alongside you in the faith. It's a real relationship, a relationship in which Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Christ is their Lord and your Lord, the nature of our interaction, our friendship, our fellowship, our communion, our family bond is established, strengthened, and enabled to cause us to grow, to be convicted, to walk in the truth, and to be uh, shaped in the process of sanctification, even through these means, to stand alongside the Lord, or alongside our brother in the Lord to greater degree. Uh, insight into this relationship between Peter and Paul, again, provides us a greater context to understand what he means by brotherly affection. In spite of this correction that had occurred, Peter refers to him as his beloved brother, and rightly so. Finally, a prescription of supplements, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. You need all of these to stand. That brings us to the final example, love. Again, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith by this list I just read, adding to brotherly affection a seventh, love. Verse 6, for if these, chapter 1, qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What of this love that Peter speaks to, of course, overlapping with brotherly affection, but I think we see it demonstrated in the tone of Peter's letter. In chapter 2, the tone is very harsh, very direct, and very uh, judgment-filled and rebuke-filled. Why? Because he's addressing the false prophets. First Peter 2.1, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He goes on to declare what they deserve, comparing them to the fallout of Noah in the days of Sodom. Bold and willful, he goes on to describe them. In verse 10, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. He sums up chapter 2 by saying, What the true proverb says happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter is comparing the blasphemers to dogs and pigs. He's saying that a dog, you know, in his diet, he'll consider vomit just as much as he will consider regular food. And that is to be compared with the ungodly who despise the gospel and blaspheme the holy name of God. So you see the language is very strong, very harsh, and rightfully so. But then notice this shift. Kids, you want to play the stop game? All right. So the word is beloved, okay? So when you hear beloved, tell me to stop and we'll count the references. You guys ready? So shout it out. Tell me to stop if you hear that word, beloved. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And, very good. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Later in verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that... Very good. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth, in verse 13, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are... Ah, good, good catch. Number three, waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, awesome, up to four, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters. And then later, you therefore, he concludes in verse 17, beloved, knowing be ah, you caught it. How many kids? Five references, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Five references to the church that illustrate Peter's heart. He loves the beloved. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, preachers of recent era um, recently passed away, R.C. Sproul. And as R.C. Sproul would preach at, preach at his church, he would reference his congregation time and again by that term, beloved. I think he had, <laughs> you, can, you can stop playing the game at this point, guys, but appreciate your attentiveness, however. So as <laughs> R.C. Sproul was addressing the congregation in his assembly, he would use that term uh, that Peter used. And I always loved that. And I, I imagined him preaching through Second Peter and then it just sticking as far as his proclamation was concerned illustrating how much Peter cared for this church. He cared so much for the church. He loved her so that he get dedicated his final words and his end of days and his legacy in ministry to simply remind them over and over again of these things that would fortify their faith. Do you need brotherly affection and love to stand in this day? You better believe it. We are created to be in community. God has designed that we are not islands, we're not individualists who can survive independent of God's means. And among those means is the fellowship, the necessary connection. It is the brother, the sharpening brother, as we've referenced in a text, if the apostles needed it, you better believe that you and I need it at times. It is the solidarity standing with one another. It's the Romans 14 obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. If you're strong in a certain area while someone else is weary, it's the willingness of Dave to take the pulpit for two weeks to give myself a break, having felt a little weary myself in my own spiritual walk and journey, and considering, you know, with fear, the duty of proclaiming his word with authority. Sometimes a brother coming alongside to help bear that burden is exactly what a pastor needs, and you need it as well. You need that conversation, that interaction, that love, that support, that nurturing relationship that sharpening, that encouragement, that equipping, that blessed interaction. After all, we are a family. We are a family. And there's a reason for that metaphor because we have a mutually interdependent relationship with every blood-bought saint. And how dare you not love that, those whom Jesus died for. And you better believe that everyone who is adopted into the kingdom of God is your brother and sister. And when we act accordingly, what will we have? We will have fortifications. We will have supplements. We will have, along with the other qualities that Peter grants us, a prescription on how to stand when the days are dark. Well, given our time constraints, and that, as I predicted, we went along with point, a little long with point number one. Now, forgive me, it had seven subpoints. I'm going to move to transition to communion at this point, and we'll pick up later on the rest of the message in later weeks. Suffice it to say, Peter's apostolic instructions include a prescription of supplements to fortify our faith. And the aim of this message is to reinforce the church by proper means. I have one more reference for you to turn to in closing. That would be Matthew 26. Would you turn there with me as we transition to communion? 
Now, there is a model that Peter, uh, that went before Peter to give him the priority concerns and what he should say and where he should stand, given that his end of life was just around the corner. And that model, of course, was his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is to say, there's a parallel between the last words of Peter the Apostle and the last supper of Jesus, his Master. Verse 26, right before Jesus goes to the garden and then proceeds to Calvary, he takes the time in love of his beloved to institute the Lord's Supper, the very meal in which we will partake in this morning. And here we have the record. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. What is the purpose of this institution of communion, the Lord's table? The scriptures go on to tell us, and we will read these passages later, the intent is to remember and to proclaim. That is, in summary, to say that the last act of Jesus before the cross, or one of them anyway, was to institute a means of memorial and proclamation that would bind the church together and provide for her a picture and an illustration of his mighty work on Calvary, that they would not forget the foundation of their faith is built upon Jesus, the substitute sacrifice, whose body was broken and blood was shed for them. So then, given this example, is it any wonder that Peter or that Peter? concludes his ministry in a similar fashion. Verse 12 of our text, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Remind you of these qualities. Stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 14, Since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things, always to remind, stir you up by way of reminder, so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. The Lord's table is an additional supplement for us. It grants us the dramatization, the picture of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary that will supplement our faith. And so we avail ourselves of it today. Peter says of these qualities in verse 8, If they are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Today, at the Lord's table, we remember that we were cleansed from our former sins. And today, as we avail ourselves of the prescription of faith supplements that Peter prescribes, Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. We also, there's a connection between that and a memory and understanding and appreciation that we were cleansed from our former sins. You could do this at a later time, but consider how every one of those qualities 
is made stronger and is connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if, as you see that, you'll, great, you'll be able to understand more fully Peter's point in that regard. Nevertheless, Peter has a conviction to remind the church, just as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, to remind the church and to proclaim the glories of the gospel. Remember Peter's last words. Remember Jesus' last supper this morning as we avail ourselves of this means of grace at his table. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for gathering us this day, your beloved, in this place to hear your holy word. We pray that as its truth has been proclaimed and insofar as it has, that you would reinforce us to stand by these means. We pray additionally as we approach your table, those who are the blood-bought, who have confessed their sins, who have repented and believed, that it would be etched upon our souls the reality of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, that we would be mindful, that we would remember and in turn proclaim that in him alone is salvation. Thank you, Father, for these instructions that you've given us through your apostle, and thank you for this meal that you have set before us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we feed upon him, so to speak, I pray that you would remind us of the essence of our faith, the foundation of our soul's hope, and the cost of our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. And we praise you because you have been raised and you ever reign at the right hand of the Father. In your name we pray. Amen.